Hey, Pete. Hey, Aaron. Get ready to start Trek. Search for Spock. Did you find him? Oh man, it's just the search. There's no there's no guarantee they're gonna find him. Look, they're sending out a search party. It's gonna be okay. Shatner did have a joke I saw that like there when he was talking about the movie didn't have that many surprises. He's like, Well, yeah, at the end of the movie, it's not like one of us gonna turn to the camera and go, Well, couldn't find him. <laughs> <laughs> like it is you're you're starting with a estimation of where you're gonna end up, and which they did. They came up with the they came up with the last line first and they wrote back from there but we'll talk about that more in a second welcome to star trek the movie podcast where myself the host of one of the hosts of we love to watch uh you made so much you've made so much fun of me when i said i'm a host and then i called you a host that's not a different show peter can't assume people have ever heard that this is start fresh uh so on this on this show i'm the only one that's made that mistake and you're perfect um (laughs) so i am 51 percent of the host of we love to watch and i've been a star trek fan my entire life it was my first big obsession i read books about it I read those novelizations. I literally, like, was absorbing just uh, data. <laughs> Do you get it? Peter, you might not. Because yeah, my other... Yeah, I get co- that one. Take Brett right. Spiner. Is that a name? Nailed it. <laughs> uh, because my other co-host, I find out after two and a half years of doing a podcast with him, has never seen anything really Star Trek minus the two remakes. So what this podcast is, is we're going through the movies in order. We're going to start... Well, we started with Star Trek The Motion Picture, uh, and we're going all the way to beyond, and we may have some fun little stuff along the way. In addition to that, for each movie, uh, we are uh, also doing a few episodes of the show, and eventually Star Trek The Next Generation when we get to those movies, to kind of of, uh, give context to the movies or introduce characters that are introduced in the show first or stuff like that. So we're on our uh, third week proper. We're doing Star Trek Three. The Search for Spock, and the episodes of the original series, Errand of Mercy, which introduces the Klingons, which are heavily featured in this movie, and uh, Journey to Babel, which introduces Sarek, Spock's father, who is also in this movie, because Spock is dead. Yeah. What? He dies at the end of Star Trek Into Darkness. Actually, he's mostly <laughs> alive in this movie. He's just not Leonard Nimoy. And we're joined by Anthony Pizzo, who's been a two-time guest on We Love to Watch. We're so happy to join here, thanks for joining us, Anthony. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, a little bit of different vibe where we, we all have our glasses on. Uh, we've pre-given ourselves wedgies. We're ready to nerd out. <laughs> <laughs> There's been a uh, turning moment in the <laughs> show in the past couple episodes where in the first two episodes, I was like, "What?" I was like, you know, I'll give it a shot. And now I'm like, I got to figure out what happens to this Spock character <laughs> you keep talking about. Well, yeah. Well, so that's fine. You can give wedgies. Uh, and then also on this show, we uh, we have lots of debates about the DC Marvel movies. Um, and we lean heavily towards DC because they have the stronger artistic vision. And also on this on this show specifically, we're pro Gamergate on We Love to Watch anti like not good at all. It's actually terrible on this show because we're nerds. 
we're unfortunately very pro Gamergate, and it's uh, to our never-ending shame, I think. I did not know I was signing up for this. I'm going to leave right now. <laughs> I mean, you came on specifically because of that reason, So, and we've, we don't want to be pro Gamergate, but on this... Like, now, now that I'm recalling the c- c- conversation, it was like, oh yeah, we're very anti-Gamergate. Yeah, no, I did say I, I did say we're we're anti anti Gamergate, which I can see why. That's just how I talk, Anthony. Yeah. it's not it's not nice to make fun of how. Well, we talk. I guess I guess I'm I stuck exclusively here now. use double names. Hey, Klingons, that sounds like something that happens when you have uh, poop that sticks to your butt. Sure. Well, um, I think that's it for Star Trek. I think with that joke, uh, Peter has ended track. So good night. No, uh, but uh, Anthony, before we get into the uh, the the episodes that we cover, get get our take uh, on those, and then Peter's reaction, and then move into the movie. Uh, what what is your history with Star Trek? Uh, well, the uh, besides Wrath of Khan, uh, the very first Star Trek I saw was the uh, the Abrams movies. Uh, and I never, I never actually watched the show until I started doing it for my TV project, uh, where I do a sketch a day thing, which is one of my favorite things to like to see in my feed. Oh, thank like, you. You can tell Anthony just like came up with a really like fun, cool idea on how to capture the episode in one little frame. And it's always satisfying and it's always fun to see. It's very often funny. Why don't you explain it before? And then Peter can give you the abusive praise with with our audience having context. All right. So what what I do with the, the sketch a day project is I watch an episode of a TV show I've never seen before. And I do a little drawing based on it. Uh, for a long time, they were like cartoons that sort of boiled de- the, an episode down to its essence. Uh, and more recently, I've taken to drawing a, uh, a fairly faithful reproduction of a scene from an episode. Uh, that started around the time of Bunheads, uh, Amy Sherman Palladino's follow-up to Gilmore Girls, uh, where I really wanted to sketch like all the dancers sort of doing their thing, and that carried over into uh, City of Men, the uh, the Brazilian television show based on the film City of God, but not actually connected to it. That was that was also fun because I was like pretty sure no one else had seen City of Men. <laughs> nobody. Was, like, was this a hallucination I had in two thousand seven? No, nobody had seen it. So, have you just done the original series, or did you move on to Next Generation? And did you end up watching uh, all of the movies? Uh, I did. I have not seen Next Generation yet. Uh, so, and uh, I did see the movies uh, because I figured they actually contain like. Unless um, unless a show movie like actually like continues the plot of the show, I I won't do it. Like, but Star Trek like as I found out, those movies really like they they dig into a lot of the core plots of the show, and a lot of people told me they were actually better than the the show, uh, which I tend to agree with. I think they're a little yeah. more focused. They have more budget to like really. And they take they take things a little more seriously. Yep. Uh, and so actually, I I loved the uh, the movies. I loved all of them. Did you stop at Undiscovered Country? Or did you watch the Next Generation ones? Did you watch Generations with Kirk? Where what was your or did you just watch? the last one was number six? Uh, I guess okay. that's Undiscovered Country. Okay. Yeah, it is. So yeah, so you did you didn't move into the Next Generation ones? Um, and uh, at some point, you you should really do the Next Generation for your for your show not as much as the one i've been pushing because i think it'll have a lot of material 
Uh, if you, I think you should do every episode of sixty minutes. <laughs> A lot of a lot of very drawings, and I can't wait to see your artwork on the 1977 uh, OPEC riots. I think that would be good. I don't know if you'd so much draw the riots or draw Morley Safer's reaction to the, the riots. That's tough. That's something I think every episode you're going to have to be like, do I draw the news or all of our cast of characters reacting to the news? Or like Andy Rooney really mad at a, a Razor scooter. Yeah, I think I there's there's probably a lot. Like he's probably at one point there's like an episode from the 60s where he's like, a slinky, what if I put it in my bed? And because I need a new spring, but it's just shaped like it. This is false advertising and I wasted money on this swing, slinky. Like that. That's art, I think, that you could probably put in there. Just Every some ideas. episode with Anthony devolves into Giggle Fest. And it's, it's, it's really, like, uh, warming for the heart. I mean, that one has a movie, too. At the end, you can watch The Insider. <laughs> that's, that's heavily connected to the series. Uh, it's you gonna be a good. Him, it's gonna be a good show, uh, I think. Uh, but that's great. No, uh, I don't know how to keep going over this. Like, just power through. Power I, through. I'll just I'll just pretend you stop laughing and silence the track. This is when Aaron starts his uh, slideshow of uh, atrocities committed in the Balkans. <laughs> I can't start it till Anthony drops. That's probably a multi-episode arc they went through. <laughs> <laughs> okay 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 so we'll start that okay. we'll do it we'll do a cast on that we'll call it uh uh 60 minute cast but it'll like all of our podcasts it'll be three hours long <laughs> <laughs> we'll do three minutes per minute 60 minutes oh. so so i will say that anthony is weirdly enough in the he's in the um, middle middle territory between aaron and i because like Anthony has seen all of the show, and I've only seen uh, the episodes that I've been asked to cover, plus a couple extras. The, but basically, I've seen, like, six episodes of the show. Sorry, eight episodes of the show. And Anthony has seen all of the show, it sounds like, all three seasons. Yeah, all three seasons of the original show and all the movies. So, I, and I'm catching up. So, but, like, Aaron is, like, a lifelong fan, and he's also into TNG and all the other... And Deep Space um, Nine, yeah, stopped at Voyager. I did watch... I've probably seen about, like, two and a half seasons worth of Voyager episodes and a season and a half worth of Enterprise episodes. Um, but, yeah, my knowledge of those shows and... Is Voyager um, the name of the ship in that season? It is, Yeah. Well, what's the name of the ship? Is, is in uh, TNG? Is the name of the ship also Enterprise? Correct. Yep. Uh, so after, uh, well, it's kind of spoilers, but yeah, there's. Have a they few... started a vibrator line based on all the names of the ships? Because they would make excellent vibrator. Well, names. here's how it would go: Enterprise, Enterprise, uh, <laughs> Enterprise. Well, it'd be like Enterprise Two, right? You got to make people think that the next one is going to be. Yeah, they do. Better, they have right? like a. They do have a designation. We'll get into that next week or next uh, next episode. Uh, the, yeah, so well, well obviously, no. The second one is called uh, Enterprise Two: The Next Gyneration. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you have, but I think I think the, I think the other Win! one you're forgetting too is good because you have let's see Star Trek, you have Enterprise, then you have Enterprise, then you have Deep Space Nine, which I guess you could call the vibrator Deep Space Nine. Um, you could just call maybe, it Deep Space Nine. Yeah, yeah, I mean you could, but they also have a ship called the Defiant, which could be good. That could be like your your the vibrator Defiler. that doesn't always work. 
<laughs> it's a bad connector between the battery yeah, and but the, when it works it's really good it's, it's like actually you have a lot of women who are like actually the shock is a uh, an unexpected uh, stimulant <laughs> yeah it cloaks it's like I it's like when you constantly. walk across the carpet in your socks and you get a little yeah. jolt yeah and then voyager obviously good and then it goes back to enterprise again but, uh, that, now enter- but that enterprise is small and unsatisfying and now discover- is the ship on i forget is, is the ship on star trek discovery i've only watched half of it is that is the ship name Discovery? Because if it is, also great name for vibrator. True. Uh, I don't know. I discovered more than one hole. Um, <laughs> God, getting graphic. I think it's fun that Anthony is kind of in between because Andrew Bloom and uh, Bruce Gorbs were uh, Bruce. Bruce. <laughs> I, I can't not call him Gorbs. Um, yeah, despite and the fact that it's such a harder name. Both with Aaron on the uh, the expert end of things. Uh-huh. Yeah. I like that Anthony is a little closer to me on the novice end, though you 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 went through this journey recently, which is very reassuring. And I think that'll be the same for next month's guests, too. I think Carrie Nelson, who will be guesting on Voyage Home, I think she's closer to you. I don't know where Zach falls, and then we're circling back to Bruce. So um, I think it, it, it is nice to, I agree, to get kind of a, a mix of novices and... Uh, that is wonderful. So what do we have on the dock today, Aaron? Yeah, so we're going to talk about two episodes. Um, so originally, we are just going to do one. We we're going to do Aaron and Mercy. Uh, it introduces the Klingons. I thought it made sense. Uh, Peter had seen the Klingons in uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture. Uh, briefly, they get blown up by V'ger at the beginning. But uh, I think Aaron of Mercy, while not a great episode of Star Trek does a good job of kind of introducing this this kind of cold war that they have with the Klingons and their general principles that while they get expanded out quite a bit, especially by the time you get to next generation and they're uh, and one of the, and a Klingon is uh, a cast or a cast member on the Enterprise or um, I should say a, a crew member on the Enterprise. Um, you know, th- they go a lot deeper into Klingon culture, but a lot of the seeds, especially the seeds pre- uh, nerd alert, the Kittimer Accords um, uh, are, is set up pretty well here. And then as I was watching Star Trek 3, so for, I actually had uh, Journey to Babel as something to do uh, at, in Star Trek 4, forgetting stupidly that Sarek was in Star Trek 3 because he is in Star Trek 4. Um, and so after I watched it, I was like, oh, shit, we should probably do Journey to Babel because when Sarek appears in Star Trek 3, it really is everyone, you know, drops their jaws and recognizes him. And that's one of those things. There's not a, you know, um, Star Trek in general was not continuity based. It was an adventure every week. But that is one of those examples of uh, a moment in the movies that is like you could figure it out eventually, but it's definitely going to be lost on you a little while everyone goes, whoa, unless they're just like two Vulcans. I thought there was just the one. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, but Journey to Babel is kind of one of those classic episodes. Uh, you, that, you get to meet the classic Star Trek v- villain uh, Beam of Light and or Cloud. <laughs> yeah, Beam of Light and or Cloud. Very. They're very popular. Uh, Spheres, really big, too. But I think also, you know, on our first ep- – or on the motion picture episode, we, we went through, like, the three main uh, Star Trek-type episodes. Um, and I think there is a a bigger overarching type of show that Star Trek is that encompasses all those – all those um, 
all those uh, mini like subgenres that they they tend to go to, uh, and that is uh, while it's a science fiction show, Star Trek is also kind of primarily a mystery show. Um, about I would say seventy five percent of the episodes, if not more, they um, they're they're presented with something that they need to solve for, whether it's a why is this. Uh, space whale dying or why is there two of me all of a sudden or why is troy having weird nightmares and showing up in elevators with knives what's up with this cloud yeah and yeah what's up with this cloud what's up with this fear what's up with this orb um you know it's it's not all the episodes but it really is a I think at its heart, it's a it's a mystery show, and Journey to Babel is a really good example where they they present you a mystery and they spend the episode solving it. Yeah, um, it's like it's like it's straight up like Agatha Christie almost. Where, it really where is, like, yeah. Be, especially with sort of like it's not necessarily locked room, but it's very close quarters. It, it's it's almost like uh, Death on the Nile, where where it's like instead of being like at a beach resort, it you know it's on the ship, or or I guess like. Or murder in the Orient Express, where it's on, uh, instead of being on a train, it's on this on the spaceship. And I love what I love also is that it fits within. It seems to fit within the era as well because uh, this sort of classic structure fits very well within that sort of like uh, 60s, 70s uh, drama. It just happens to take place in space. And you can almost write these things backwards the way Agatha Christie supposedly wrote some of her stories and be like, uh, a, a woman murders her own daughter, even though it's unexpected to make sure that her daughter doesn't get the inheritance because uh, she... But her daughter is has locked her out of changing the will and yada yada. You can almost write the third act and then go to the first act and just have it be like, well, I, I can't believe anyone would murder my wonderful daughter. And then you can do the second act and be like, well, how do people find the clues that leads to the third act? And, and, I, and I love that you can do that in this because, like, you can basically have the second act last two minutes. You can basically just be like, a guy says exactly what why he's murdering these people and that solves the second act problem you get to the third act which is like solving it yeah and this this uh, we can start with i guess journey to babel i think that makes sense let's do it um, let's do it um and it does two things i really like um the first thing is it does that star trek thing where it presents someone that you're supposed to think is guilty uh based on the way they look and the way they talk and you know uh, movies, TV, society as a whole is very good at kind of establishing these stereotypes of like, uh, you know, that's like where racial stereotypes come from. Like these, you know, uh, society uh, is very good at racism. It's very good at racism. Uh, and it's this idea of like, so good. You know, it's the it's the whole Trayvon Martin thing. Like, what do you expect if you're like a black kid in a hoodie in uh, walking a certain way, like people, you know, all the worst people in the world that were like, yeah, maybe he was innocent, but that you could you can see why people would think he's up to no good. And Star Trek is always good about taking those types of themes and and making them in these alien races. So you have these like uh, I forget what race they are. Um, tell you right, I think. Yeah, tell you right. It um, it, uh, it sounded like. 
it like kind of flew off the sorry it kind of slides off the tongue which is like not common for some of these star trek <laughs> yeah um and they're you know they're like oh, oh, oh and they they're kind of grunty and neanderthal looking and they have hairy faces and you can't see their eyes yeah the pig like, people yeah they're yeah they're very yeah they're very much the, like the twilight zone episode where they wake up and everyone's pigs uh and you know they're not like even though it's a diplomatic conference they're not very diplomatic and yeah you know you're supposed to think that they're guilty and they're doing something schemy, uh, and uh, right up until the point you find one dead and realize that that they were not, and that's that's such a good like Star Trek inversion of a like social justice of like, hey, you know the person here's like, why would you have prejudice against an alien species? Uh, but somehow like that made you think that they were guilty. Everyone thinks they're guilty, uh-huh. just so, like of course. Um, and the way they're able to subvert that is really good. I really like that. The other thing I really like... It reminds me of Mass Effect, which I've talked about previously on the show, and <laughs> how they take uh, ugly or uh, characters you don't think you can uh, empathize with because they don't look like, you know, mammalian or they don't look sexy or they don't look cool, and through conversation with them and, you know, humanism and, and having, like, an actual conversation with uh, a, a, a species that's not your own, you... St- start to understand the position they're coming from. And uh, that's what I was reminded of is like the Krogan, which are more uh, Vulcan, or sorry, they're more Klingon um, overall, but I was reminded of the Krogan in the Mass Effect games, how you just see these like toad looking ugly motherfuckers and you're like, oh, they're just like the warmongering assholes. Like, why would I even give them a chance? Then you actually get to talk to one of them and you're like, oh, because you're still a person and you have a sense of personhood. And I like that that sense of humanism is showing here because, like, it's actively reversing our prejudices. Yeah, and there's even a little bit um, – we'll talk about this in Aaron of Mercy that, that subverts that too, which is the idea of, hey, you know, this, this, this race of people that you've decided you are superior to, maybe you're not. Um, maybe not so much. Uh, we'll get to that in a sec. Uh, the other thing I really like – uh, and th- this is an episode that Star Trek does occasionally, specifically with their alien uh, species crew members that aren't human usually, which is like their parents or family members show up and there's a conflict between like their work life and uh, and uh, their like history or culture or whatever else. In general, I find the Spock episodes to be the most fascinating of the original series uh, just because they had such a good handle on him, and I feel like the writers were able to get personal with Spock stories in a way that they weren't able to with uh, Kirk stories, who, you know, th- those were mostly aspirational adventure stories. They, they were who he, they wanted to be, uh, and Spock was kind of who they were. Yeah. And normally I'm not so hot on, like, daddy issue stories, but... I think what's so great about the way they use Spock's parents, like especially sort of the conflict between his father and his mother, is that it contextualizes the struggle Spock has on the Enterprise, where like, you know, Kirk will fire off a a joke about like, oh, Spock, that was almost human. And then like you see this whole relationship between his father and his mother and his dad is very distant, very cold, very logical. And his mom's very human. It's like, oh, like. This is how these things come together. This is why Spock, like, has these flashes and, like, why he's also so uncomfortable with them. And then, like, why Kirk saying that is kind of mean. 
Yeah, and it's also it's also very relatable from a personal level, which is not something that Star Trek always is. Star Trek a lot of times is relatable re- relatable from a societal standpoint. You like recognize you this is society you're living in or the news of the time or the current affairs kind of reflected back through the prism of this like future soap opera. It's not always personally relatable. Mm-hmm. And this and this is a really good episode where it is like I think everyone has had an experience for the most part of whether it's parents or like friends from your high school, like going to the place where you've created a certain reputation for yourself as you get older, college work, whatever it is. And all of a sudden deflate that in a way that's, like, very embarrassing, but also you don't really know what to do. <laughs> like, that that thing where they're like, oh, yeah, Spock had a teddy bear. And, like, <laughs> Kirk and McCoy are, like, really trying to dig up the dirt on, like, what was Spock like as a kid? And, like, Spock, because he's emotionless, isn't like, Dad, Mom, I'm going to my room. <laughs> you suck. You're, you're blowing up my spot with my new friends. He's not doing that. But you can tell he's just deeply uncomfortable and even Spock, this like emotionless in theory or you know logical person, like he you you get a sense that even him has tried to create this version of himself that is just very coldly logical and has never struggled with emotions and all these things in the past. And then his mom and dad are like, "Yeah, he would get scared," and everyone's like, "Holy shit!" Uh, but that is so relatable. Like, and it has the great, it has the best line. Not to interrupt, but that no. has the best line in the whole episode when uh, Spock is like defending himself, and he's like, "On Vulcan, the yeah. teddy bear are alive and have six inch fangs." And some of that seems <laughs> fake too. He's like still trying to keep it up, almost, yeah, right? Because like, that's when Kirk and McCoy roll their eyes at each other. Like, sure, Spock, you've you've been you've been called out. We know that you had a teddy bear. You can't save it anymore. And I think we've just all been there, like. Uh, at some point in our life, like going to college and like, oh, yeah, maybe I was better in sports. And then like some high school friend comes and goes, uh, you know, you weren't on the baseball team in junior high. And you're like, Fuck! I was trying to portray myself a slightly differently and you've ruined it. Uh, can you just be cool for like five seconds? Can you be cool? Can you be cool for like, can you, can you be cool? Can you be cool for five seconds? <laughs> and like Spock really has become that way. It's not like he's lying or anything like that. It's just a just like everyone else, he had a story of how he got there and sometimes that story is filled with things that current you looks back on an embarrassment. And I you know, that is such a relatable feeling um and the fact that it's done like through Spock. And it's it's like I said, they do these they do this episode, this type of episode, a few times on Star Trek. This is the only one I can think of that is relatable in that way, because most of the time it's like Worf's brother being like, "You've forgotten what it means to be a Klingon" and stuff like that. Um, this is yeah, this is the only episode with Sarek in the original series. He's actually on more episodes of the Next Generation, huh? Uh, than he is on episodes of the original series which is funny to think of and he is super uh it's a super interesting interpretation of what vulcans are like because uh nimoy has this sort of like um calm computer-like persona and Sarek adds a little bit of uh like fire or strength Mm -hmm. behind it and it makes the character fun to watch tangle with people because like 
you you can tell that he doesn't like to be in a weakened position because his entire job is to be a diplomat and enforce the you know the the Vulcan not the Vulcan will that would be like a Klingon thing but like the Vulcan perspective into discussions where he can. Well, and, and actually, it's so cool to see that because like and 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 uh, uh, fucking. Uh, Spock is just a member of the crew, so he doesn't he doesn't have that job. He's just like, well, when someone asks me what I think, I will tell you exactly what I think. Whereas Sarek is like, I'm a leader. I have to act differently than my son would. Well, and it's actually so funny you mentioned that of like uh, Sarek is one of the great things they do. So he does show up on The Next Generation on an episode called Sarek, uh, which is set like 80, 85 years after this episode because Vulcans live like two, three hundred years. Um, and it's so great that you, like because you're right. He he is truly the 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 fullest version of uh, the ideal that Spock portrays Vulcans as, you know, because he doesn't have that human side of him. And he is just he's pure Vulcan. Like he doesn't even have that thing that spock is like pushing down and ignoring uh that's what he is as you mentioned and it's so great what they do in the next generation spoiler for an episode you'll probably watch in like six months uh but uh Sarek is old and um he vulcan's version of alzheimer's isn't that they forget but it's that they can't suppress emotions oh wow Ah, that's really cool i like that but it's also interesting because it, it fits in with the pon far thing mm-hmm. or like they do need an outlet for that level of rationality like they need a moment to act crazy and be id driven for a moment well it's so great as like a reflection of like dignity too that like you know uh, elderly people that we like you know my my grandpa had alzheimer's and there is like this dignity that you that they you know feel like they're losing as they start forgetting major parts and everyone gives them these looks of like you know patronizing them in some way like yeah no it's it's cool that you don't remember that you know stuff like that and just that kind of feeling of like people looking at you differently and so like it's so great that they have these these setups like Sarek isn't in much he's in five he's in three and four and he's in this one episode and then he shows up next on an episode of the next generation and but you get enough of a sense in these uh these appearances to realize that he is the type of man that is very proud and it when he starts having these kind of emotional outbursts and people start looking at you know Sarek the way that you that that way like it is it's 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 he feels like he's lost who he is and he's lost his dignity um and i don't think that episode would work as well if they if mark leonard wasn't so good at the role and they're able to establish so much in a short period of time so would like you know uh when uh older people in america uh, in the western world generally get they get older they probably are sent to a retirement community retirement home some place where that that those memory issues are not as much of a threat to themselves florida um so for so i was gonna say for fucking klingons uh sorry for fucking vulcans when they get to retirement age do they just send them to like florida on earth or something like do they just send them somewhere where like being overly emotional and like yelling at your neighbors is like totally fine yeah that sounds like florida yeah <laughs> like it, it's one of those things where it's like they've earned it yeah they've earned it go go yell at your neighbor about how their dog shits on your lawn sometimes once every six go, months go yell at your neighbor go like 
leave your turn signal on in your land speeder like all day <laughs> just all day like the battery dies from like being in a garage with just the turn signal so, um, uh, the the other the final thing i really like about this episode is uh kind of shows something of kirk's character at his best which is most episodes and i think it's at the end when are they the andorians i'm this is where i could use a bruce <laughs> Uh, cause he knew the names better than I, than I do. Uh, but the, the blue antennae guys, when they find out that, oh, the ship they've been chasing is them and that was the killer, they take all their poison pills and die. It's like Kirk is visibly shaken that even these like murderous people that tried to disrupt a peace treaty have, ta- have died. Like death of any kind is a toll that, that Kirk reacts to. And I think that's really great. Because especially like Vietnam was happening during the show and they're, you know, as someone who was very like Iraq war and everything else, like, holy cow, is America and and I know other cultures as well good at dehumanizing enemies. And Star Trek, for the most part, does a really good job of that, like that the characters take death as a horrible thing regardless of who it happens to that's not always the case because sometimes they have an episode uh where you know people are a little like relieved that someone dies <laughs> um but for the most part like you know there's no like backstabby star trek guys like they're they're not they're not trying to kill they're always trying to uh take every every mode of action available to them to stop and then feel like a loss of life is a failure on their part uh did you ever read uh harlan ellison's original uh original script for uh city on the edge of forever i have not no uh because the way that originally starts is basically there's this crew member who's selling space crystal drugs uh this guy takes one and he he goes nuts and he and he kills the guy and and then he like he's running around he jumps through that the portal thing and like they're going after him rather than McCoy like you know like having that oh interesting instead of McCoy having that accident and then like getting shot with the adrenaline thing that just like makes him crazy it's it's this person actually it's actually uh too much antibiotics which is the best (laughs) (laughs) but yeah like it's this like he Harlan Ellison wanted this whole idea of like this sort of seedy underbelly to the enterprise because you know, all these people are out there for God knows how long. And like certain people are going a little stir crazy. Yeah. So uh, any other final thoughts on Journey to Babel before we go to Aaron of Mercy? It is a good episode. I think this was a wise choice in many, many ways. But one of the key reasons was that this is, I guess, like number four on your list. Uh, maybe number five. Uh is that this is a diplomacy episode, so it gets you lets you have the cantina scene. Yep. And there's a version of that in uh, Star Wars: The Last Jedi and the Casino. Like, well, there's actually a version of it in Star Trek Three, the movie we're about to talk about. <laughs> yeah. So that is another reason that it was so great. Uh, they also do it in Guardians of the Galaxy a few times. It's always my favorite thing when. Oh, and the best one, the best one of all of them, is in Hellboy Two when they go to the troll market because. You can tell Guillermo del Toro just went fucking insane. Like, he's like, oh, yeah, and then this guy's got this fucking weird head, and this guy's got, like, fucking hammers for arms. I don't know anymore. He just kept going. Um, but the the cantina scene is, like, such a powerful moment in Star Wars, and it makes the, the world explode outward. Yeah. And, and uh, for this, it also did that, um, but it's in 
uh, candy colored 60s photography and it, it's so cool like it just seeing all these weird aliens even though a lot of it is just kind of like you know cheap looking like rubber masks but like it's so cool to just see all these guys stuck together and figuring out some diplomacy deal and yada yada yeah it's my favorite thing in all these movies so so fun fact about that uh i picked star trek to do for the the sketch a day thing because i thought it was like doctor who where there would just be like a crazy alien every week and then clouds <laughs> <laughs> so I got to this episode and it was like, holy shit, there's actually aliens, different kind of aliens and they're all in one place and it's awesome. Yeah, as we'll see soon, even the Klingons in Star Trek are just like, give them a mustache, some potentially offensive paint. On their I, I was going to say, <laughs> there's some problematic aspects to that makeup. Yeah, we'll get to, we'll get to that in, in Aaron of Mercy. But yeah, I just wanted to call out that you actually made a very wise choice also because it would open me up to uh, the canteen, Star Trek's version of the cantina scene, which is like so fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some really good stuff in Undiscovered Country like that too, which I think. Oh, yeah. Let's take our little break now and then we'll do Aaron of Mercy and get right into Star Trek 3. cool because also they were just fucking working actors and not many of them broke into Hollywood and became I don't think any of them broke into Hollywood and just became like A-listers like no no uh, <laughs> no one thing I'm disappointed about that we didn't mention when we were uh, doing the episode is that there is a shirtless scene with Shatner in uh, Aaron Peter. Mercy or in uh, Journey to Babel, we'll be able to talk about that at some point. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, because early, I, uh, Anthony, I don't know if you know this. It has been a a real revelation for me that uh, William Shatner was hot back in the he day. He was cut. Well, not cut, but like he was. He was, well, he was definitely cut for the sixties. Yeah, cut for, <laughs> he was hunky. He was the body type for that era, which was like a, a little dad body, but also like there's muscle in there. Yeah, there's a reason. There's that Galaxy Quest joke about you just had to find a reason to get your shirt off for Tim Allen. We'll we'll have more chances to talk about Shatner with his shirt off <laughs> because it is it is so genuinely shocking because I got introduced to Shatner as a joke for oh, my totally. entire my entire life basically so the first time I ever like got acquainted with Shatner was the roasts um and so getting to see hunky Shatner in these early episodes it's so weird like, and yeah. then like if you watch the whole thing through you can kind of see him start to lose definition <laughs> yeah yeah he and it's not and it, you know it's, it's he gradual the show at 35 yeah, yeah. right like he didn't start the show at 22 where he might have like 20 good years or you know 15 good years of being a yeah. hunk his, like, his last movie is 25 years after like he is like if it's 59 in the undiscovered country yeah he uh it, it's not his fault for yeah. losing that hunkiness but i it is funny that he became like a, a self-parody in terms of performances and also um he had been a such a not hunk for so long mm-hmm. That, you forgot, uh, or you didn't know. His hunkitude. Well, I, I, I didn't know right. because I'd never seen the original show, which was it was just a hidden, a hidden, uh, a hidden erection waiting for me. You know? <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, so let's. That's all usable, by the way, Aaron. Yeah, and on course, that yeah, note, we'll, we'll plug that in. Uh, yeah. So let's get into Aaron of Mercy. So this this really was the first Klingon episode. They show up about five or six other times on Star Trek. Sometimes just as 
Uh, they have the costumes and they're reusing they're reusing the the components. Um, there's a couple other like really Klingon focused ones like Day of the Dove. And then sometimes they're just like uh, in um, the Trouble with Tribbles side characters on a space station. <laughs> uh, and usually Trouble with Tribbles sounds like a Beastie Boys wordplay. We're <laughs> definitely going to watch that at some point. That episode. Rules. I love that episode uh, so much. So they force gump it and do the episode again in deep space. I actually believe it or not. When I was doing the show. Did you watch the I, uh, the Deep Space Nine? Yeah, one? because the the couch was so adamant. They were like, "You have to see this episode." <laughs> yeah, and it's I, really and good. I did, and it's amazing. And there's actually there was a I looked up trivia after the fact, and the guy who like is the original seller on uh, the original show, uh, Ron Moore, and whoever his writing partner was, ran into him at a to- like a, a Chinese food place in L.A. He, he was just getting dinner. Yeah. Uh, and they were like, would you be on this episode? <laughs> and he was like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's great. It's great. And uh, funny enough, in Aaron and Mercy, uh, Core, uh, the same actor, shows up on Deep Space Nine uh, three or four times uh, playing a Klingon. Um, so let's get the first thing. I wanted him to get murdered so bad, which shows uh, you how, like, even my, my like, love for this show and my uh, – my love that it is a humanitarian, you know, uh, optimistic, idealistic show, and I love, I love it especially now in the fucking hellscape that is 2018 America. Like, it, I love it even more. Um, but the even then, I was like, Kirk, please blow this fucking dude's head <laughs> off. But see, it's funny that you mentioned that because. That's what Kirk feels too. And we've had a, a good show of like even like Balance of Terror, which you'll watch later, of like Kirk looking to empathize and respect people that he has like disagreements with or his uh or the Federation does. He fucking hates Core and it almost sinks this him down. Core is this, a Hitler. Yeah. And he sinks him down to this base level where all of the humanistic components uh go away and while, like, I don't think that you need to be humanistic to Space Hitler or, just as long as it's been in the news, baby Hitler. Like, <laughs> and, any and also, any yeah, age I, of Hitler, space, terrestrial, whatever else, Hitler bad. But it is... Also, this, side note, I guess technically Khan... There's so many Space Hitlers. Khan is technically Space Hitler, not to nerd myself, but I'll just give myself a wedgie if you guys don't mind. Uh, yeah, uh, he's, I don't know, Mussolini, core. He's space Genghis Mussolini. Khan. Yeah. Well, not, not he'd be like a sub-general of Genghis Khan. Yeah, so it's, uh, but that's the, that's the point, is that Kirk all of a sudden becomes, by, um, by being so, by removing the empathy level and removing, like, his humanism towards core and just seeing him as, like, a true villain, he sinks down to his own baseless instincts to the point that, uh, Fuck, what are the people on that? Uh, what, Organians? What yeah, the Organians don't see much difference between the two. They're like, oh, yeah. yeah, we stopped you both. Like, you both suck. You both were about to plunge the galaxy in core, uh, into war, <laughs> in core war. And or- Organians <laughs> are essentially what Gandhi wish he had. Like, yeah. he wish he had such passive power. Suck it, Gandhi. That, like... He could remove, yeah, Space Gandhi. fucking Gandhi. What a scrub. Um, Gandhi wishes he had that sort of like ability to affect change on a almost like uh, 
chemical level. Yeah. Like, he, he, he can actually stop them from murdering each other and anybody else, and he has such faith in that system that, like, even if, I don't know, hypothetically something went wrong, they would be fine with it because... Because it, no, it doesn't matter to them. Well, it and, doesn't matter. And it's not surprising this episode, like, this episode feels very Vietnam-y to me because you literally, as an audience member, are supposed to go when the uh, Oregonians uh, are like... Uh, Hey, Kirk, we're taking away your stuff, too. Like, you're supposed to go, but Kirk's the good guy. Kor's the bad guy until they kind of explain, like, how are you guys different here? They're going to attack you. They're going to blow up your planet. You want to blow up their planet. Like, that that, that that idea of, like, okay, yeah, U.S. is the good guy in the Vietnam War. You're going and killing a bunch of people, too, including getting all your own people killed. Like, there's – at this point, there's not good guys or bad guys. You guys have both just – uh, killing each other, and I—I I mean, I don't think you could historically, at the you know, make the case that that America was uh, was the good guy in Vietnam. I don't think, besides like George W. Bush in two thousand five, you're not going to find that many people that make that case. But when the show was on, that was the case, and that that will be the case, unfortunately, probably many times. Like the Iraq War was this idea that we're good guys, they're bad guys, we go kill them, uh, and we need to take their weapons because we we it's okay if we have weapons because we have noble. Noble intentions there, not so much. Yeah, ma- so. like manifest destiny and shit. Yeah, exactly. So and, it's, and I love it's it great. because I love it because also like it is it is tapping into the Vietnam War. But I do we want to talk about the racist stuff real quick to just you yeah know? yeah let's let's talk they about are, yeah, the yeah. Klingons uh, in the new show. Or I guess in the movies onward, from three onward, they have the wrinkle foreheads, which yeah, we, I believe talk about means why they happened. fucked with the vampires from Buffy. <laughs> um, <laughs> they are at least have a distinct feature that is not associated with any race. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it makes them look angrier, but whatever. The Klingons in this specifically are in brown face with Fu Manchu style mustaches and be and you know. Uh, you know, uh, goatees, and it's it very much reminds me of either it's it's yellow terror, yeah. right? Like it, it's either fear of the Chinese or fear of you know, I guess sort of an older fear, but fear of Mongolian invaders. Um, and it reminds me of like some of the yellow terror stuff that um, Bela Lugosi did um, when his career was waning, and he had to play like. Chinese villains who would like want to kidnap the women and do terrible experiments on them. So like the show is teaching a message of tolerance and pacifism, but the caveat is that the show is also a product of its racial time. stereotypes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's it sucks. It's it's something that's so uh, it's good that they get out of really quickly. Um, fun fact: there's actually a canonical reason why. Um, Klingons have ridges after this movie, including Kor, because Kor, when he shows up in Deep Space Nine, he it's not like he's just like the one guy who's still in blackface or brown. Oh, they all like, they all fucked the grumpiest person in the universe. Got yeah. it. No. Uh, so what actually the canonical reason is that uh, Klingons were aware of Khan. Uh huh. And were also trying to like use the. Like, or they found out about Khan later on with interactions with the Federation. They didn't meet him, but, like, they learned about the eugenics component. 
uh, and they tried to do their own experiments. Oh wow! And and it unfortunately became a uh, like a flu like like virus that infected a huge contingent of the Klingon population. So it's also it, interesting because the, there's a whole genophage thing in Mass Effect that is essentially like a, a genetic virus that just keeps getting passed down from generation to generation through the Krogan, who are sort yeah. of the Klingon uh, ripoffs. So, yeah, this is something that lasts like 30 or 40 years and doesn't necessarily infect anyone. And so, like, eventually they discovered a cure and, uh, you know, the Klingons uh, went back to normal um, – and there's a good joke about this in Deep Space Nine where they um, – um, where where everyone looks at the Klingons because they're, they're like in the episode of uh, the original series because they're doing Forrest Gump stuff and uh, everyone looks at Worf. <laughs> and he's and is like – We don't he's talk like, about don't, it. He's like, yeah, we don't talk about it. Uh, and then you eventually find out on Star Trek Enterprise I think because they, they meet the scientist who is doing the testing and then it – gets unleashed so um that's actually really charming because they i presume they presumably were doing that to move away from the yellow terror stuff right well and just uh you know like a lot of original series they just they had a, a extremely low budget so alien races were for the most part like little pointy ears or like the journey to Babel ones are actually yeah that's some of the most alieny they get in the original series most of the, i mean half the time they're like this person's green or they're just humans or, or my like, my absolute favorite the alien race that are like a black and white cookie <laughs> oh yeah that's teaching about racism too that's frank gorshin yeah when do i get to watch that episode that's a that's a Good one in theory. I don't remember the episode being that good. It's good. Oh, it's a terrible movie. I mean, it's a it's a yeah. terrible episode. Uh, and uh, but it's a uh, but it's a fun meme. Oh, yeah. And uh, it lacks a little subtlety. I don't know if you know this, but apparently, uh, I, when I was doing research for my my Mad Men uh, epilogue, where I sort of imagined where everybody ended up, apparently it was fan theory that. That was the episode Paul Kinsey wrote. <laughs> and I like that a lot. Yeah, it's uh, they have they have a lot of those. Sometimes they're they're a little more subtle than others, but that's basically it. And then once they got into the movies and had a budget, and uh, they even had a little more of a budget in you know Next Generation and stuff like that. Uh, actually, Next Generation had a pretty good. Like I think those episodes end up costing like a million dollars each, which is pretty significant for. A late 80s, early 90s uh, budget. Uh, that's, all, that's what they spend on Game of Thrones now up until this most recent season, which is obviously, like, not really... Uh, Maybe it was, like, two for 90-minute episodes each time, but that's what yeah. they've been spending on Game of Thrones, a million dollars every episode. Maybe it's... I, I could be wrong. I'll look it up at some point. But but it was... it Like, I remember seeing the number and being like, oh, wow. Yeah, um, and adjusting for inflation, that was that whatever it was was probably impressive. It's very, yeah. very impressive by modern standards. It, yeah, um, it was at least like two fifty or something like that. So yeah, yeah so, so I so okay, so yeah, let's get getting past all that stuff because this the 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 franchise moved on from it and it moved into different territory. But um, it is interesting to have this race that like. I, do, I haven't found the empathy point yet. The race just seems like they're greedy motherfuckers who need to invade because they need to invade. And they're they're so violently ambitious that they 
they can't help themselves. And the movie does not help dissuade me at all, which feels like it, it feels like having an e- having a race that inherently is driven towards evil and violence is like not in keeping with the overall mythos of Star Trek. So, I mean, obviously the the Klingons get severely fleshed out, probably the most fleshed out uh, of any alien species. And it does take... Is that true? Yeah, 100%. So there's a guy, you said Worf? Worf is on The Next Generation. He's on TNG? Okay, so that's someone I'm going to meet later? Yeah, eventually Klingons and the Federation make peace. Okay. Um, And so as a result, and so there's like... There's a there's a thread that runs one of the best threads of Next Generation is like uh, a Klingon civil war and all these like things that becomes a big part in Deep Space Nine as well because uh, Worf eventually ends up there as well. Um, so there's I mean the Klingons really get fleshed out. They the Krogan comparison is right like Krogans are a hundred percent like uh, Klingons where it's this idea that they have this like they're bound by honor and they see honor in conquering and violence and then eventually like have to kind of change the way like they basically have to not do that to kind of live in their space society and then uh and then there's like people on klingon who like want to return to the old ways of conquering and stuff like that now even even that, because of its origins, you could get that that could be a little bit racially dicey or culturally insensitive. But I just I it, it, I don't think it really after the uh, the original series really just is anything more than just like yeah they were a, they were technologically advanced but just had a very like different way of. Uh, the way their culture interacted. Yeah, it's a, one of my big question was was uh, are the Klingons in the Federation by the time they get to TNG? Because you said that one of them was. I guess his name is Worf. Yeah, they um, are. They have. They have one of them. Yeah. Okay, so that okay that that checks out because I was like I remember the wrinkly headed motherfucker from those mo- catching seconds or commercials yep. from the movies on TV. And the undiscovered country is actually the first attempt at Klingon Federation. Oh, piece. yeah. Oh cool. God, that's so good. Yeah, um, even though it takes another like fifty years or whatever, and then, and actually one of the best episodes of Star Trek: The Next Generation is about the moment that they finally achieved uh, peace, um, which is like thirty years before the Next Generation. So, but um, so, something I, something I love about like you know s- setting aside the dicey like yellow peril stuff. I, I kind of love that you have these like th- th- these Klingons and like sort of these these people who are very like very base like they, they sort of live by by pleasures and by and by violence because it kind of it takes this whole concept Gene Roddenberry had of like you know this perfect utopian society. And it reminds you, like, oh yeah, people are kind of rotten. Like, no matter no matter how good people get, like, there's still people who are just bad, and like, they're not doing it for any logical reason except they're just kind of dicks. <laughs> yeah, I, I I do like that the episode finds a way to make Kirk operate on his level, mm-hmm. though. Oh yeah, because Kirk is a condescending motherfucker. Kirk. Yeah. 
Kirk comes in and he's like so condescending and he's very imperialist, but it's like soft imperialism where he's like, he's like, oh my God, you're, you're in an arrested culture. Yeah. I wrote that down. Actually- <laughs> they use the term arrested culture, which is like insane because at the end of the episode, you realize like, oh no, they are in the most advanced culture. Like this is actually the, the idealized utopia you should be striving for. Um, and Kirk set calls them essentially is like talking about them as like noble savages yeah um and he says we can build schools show you how to feed people because it's in a star trek takes place in a post-scarcity economy and like i love that they do find a way to make both of them look like assholes yeah (laughs) and i actually wrote down like they make kirk look like an asshole and i'm 83 percent certain it's it's deliberate Yeah, I do think it's – I 100% think it's deliberate. Like, you are definitely supposed to go to the Argonians and be like, yeah, they're yep. – like, they, they lay out a pretty convincing case. Here's what's really interesting about that, and this is actually something – I don't know. That's a thread that continues throughout all of Star Trek. It's one because of the nature of the Federation being the quote-unquote good guys. They never – I don't think they necessarily try to satisfyingly uh, – they, they don't necessarily – so they don't necessarily try to give a uh, uh, a closed answer to the question, but it's something that comes up a lot. The Klingons say it all the time as you get as you get on in the movies or later on when there's more conflict between the Klingons and the Federation, where it's like, "Hey, you're conquering and taking people too." Like Journey to Babel, great example. the The reason why the Tellurites are like pissed is they're like. You want them to join the Federation, and then you get all the dilithium crystals, which mine, which you use for warp drives. Like that's something that uh, you know Cardassians later on and Klingons like they levy against the Federation. Like you are going about this through peace, but you still are like assembling people on your team for the benefit of like you. You are not fully embracing like this. Isn't like space communism? It's space NATO. Yeah, yeah. And you have that whole alternate reality in Mirror Mirror where they really like they really show you what the Federation would be if they didn't even, if they didn't have this pretense. Yeah, and and that is and Deep Space 9 really gets into the underbelly of how some of the Federation's core values are are truly uh propaganda meant to inspire, but they have like They've, they're very much a look at uh, do what I say, not what I do, and we, we're hiding what we do. So it, it's nice that, like, I, I do think this episode touches on it, but it's not – it's a thread that goes on and on uh, throughout Star Trek at various points. Um, and it never gives – like I said, it never gives you just an answer to it because, like, the villains are worse, but usually when they call out the Federation for something of in this manner, like – they're right, and it's clear that the writers and the showrunners, like, agree with them. Like, they are truly trying to get you to recognize that the Federation is not this um, perfect utopian society, even if that's the way it seems on the surface. And even if, and even if the people, like, are buddies and friends in Starfleet – some of them may have really those true best intentions, but at the end of the day, there still is components of of the Federation and Starfleet um, 
that are concerning. And this one too, like uh, the other reason why Aaron Mercy is so weird is that, and this is, this is a little bit of just like writers and not having a clear sense of continuity. Like Starfleet is very much like kind of the military, but not really. And like, and like Kirk's whole, like beating his chest, like I'm a military man. <laughs> like, are you? Yeah. It's like, what, what are you Kirk? I, Cause they are, they are ostensibly a science crew that, is heavily armed and when they run into certain situations they are able to defend themselves and have a whole crew ready to repair their ship yep. because of damage and war and it's not um and I, I i i guarantee there's some episode of star trek where he says the exact opposite i mean that's i have those nitpickers guide to star trek like in general just for your edification as well or education yeah. as well peter starfleet is like not necessarily considered like the space military. <laughs> it understands the future from a modern progressive standpoint. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't match it perfectly, but it does match it in terms of approach. Utopia is not a place that you reach and then you are complacent. Yep. Utopia is a journey that you are constantly working on, and you are constantly working to make better because there's always going to be some level of inequality, some level of corruption, some level of uh, unfairness in society. And you should always be working to root that out instead of doing what a lot of conservatives do, which is you throw up your hands and just say like, hey, it's politics and politicians are corrupt. Or history was actually better when we had to kill more people in space. Yeah, whereas like I, I understand political cynicism, but... Uh, I, I do like that this is sort of it sort of understands that like Starfleet is better than a lot of them. It's not perfect. And at different days, they perform different functions because that is the, the that is the pragmatic math, daily math that you have to do as somebody who is just trying to do their best in the yeah. world. And that is. That's my philosophy, too. Like, yeah. it makes me like all these characters more to know that, like, they understand that they fuck up sometimes, but, like, they're trying their goddamn best and they their philosophy is sound. Like, treat every race you run into and their, their lives, the individual lives of individual people, as something worthy of respect. Yeah, I really think I, you, you hit the nail on the head. Like, the, the tone of Star Trek and especially our protagonists on these spaceships – in Starfleet, like the tone is a hundred percent like self-reflective optimism. Like that's Star Trek in a nutshell. It's they they want the best. They think of themselves as doing good. They hope for the best in everyone they meet and everything else. But they have like enough self-reflection to understand like where they fail when they need to use alternate methods when um they you know they could have done better and stuff like that so they are thinking on the fly like yep they, it's not wide-eyed lost... optimism it's not like blind optimism it's self-reflective but it's yeah. still optimism in that monster episode with the underground uh rock monster thing Rock monster. In the B-52 episode. We went to the planet. Um, yeah, dev, dev, <laughs> devil in the dark. Devil in there the was dark. a rock devil monster. In, <laughs> um, in that episode, uh, it took them three or four red shirts before they realized, like, hey, maybe we should, like, figure out a deal with this thing. Um, oh, man. <laughs> and that is, that is, uh, 
that is so great because it's like it's showing it's demonstrating a level of of uh self-reflection and that the journey needs to continue on um yeah do we have any final thoughts on on no i so yeah i mean peter it's kind of this is the premise like what were your overall just um i think there's a lot to talk about i i think journey to babel is a really good episode i think errand of mercy is a very interesting episode that's important for some later context with the klingons that i really like the message of it but i don't enjoy it all that much as an episode what was your takeaway flipped actually i think journey to babel was good background but i didn't enjoy it that much um a lot of the mumbo jumbo science bullshit to like get this dude a heart transplant or whatever the fuck they're doing uh was not it was just science sciencey nonsense to me um but i understood to get really used to that (laughs) i i like i like the characters i like seeing spock in a vulnerable position I like seeing, meeting Sarek. Sarek rules. Spock's mom is also great. Don't remember her name because of an asshole. What? Amanda. Amanda? Yeah, that's her name. This this show has fucking flipped my brain now. <laughs> where if you just have a normal person name, I'm like, mm, no idea. But I can remember like Kong Tong, the, the destroyer. <laughs> that's who Winona Ryder played in the, the J.J. Abrams one. <laughs> not kidding yeah um clong Tong. yep she played clong Tong, the magnificent <laughs> but i love um but i i love that i i found joy in the episode that you thought was just kind of like um i don't know pragmatic sort of getting me up to speed stuff yeah um I found that episode very cool because, like, the, the, the way they flip the script, they, they get you frustrated, they get you frustrated, and then they flip the script, felt like a lot of my favorite movies. So. Yeah. Uh, Anthony, what's your overall thoughts on the episode? Uh, I mean, just, I love I love the personal drama of Journey to Babel. Uh, I, like, I like having the aliens. You sort of have that whole, like... Uh, Star like Star Wars Casino most Eisley kind of thing. Uh, you get some creatures. You have a good solid mystery. You have Spock in a very rolling position. You you get context for who he is. Uh, and then you know the the ending's sort of like fine, but I, like all the build up to it is amazing. Uh, and then Aaron to Mercy is like there's some like there's some amazing work with sort of undoing the the mythos of the federation and and kirk is like sort of like this enlightened man you like you really sort of get down to his faults and the faults of the federation uh and then it has just like killer ending because i'm i'm i am an absolute easy mark for a an episode basically like ends on a joke (laughs) where where it's just like and you're all assholes I, I love that reversal of fortunes because I, I I was so annoyed with Kirk and so annoyed with uh, Core that all of a sudden I was like, I was like, you know what? I hope Core's light and uh, <laughs> Kirk get their their asses handed to them by this alien race. Like, I hope the Organians like figure some shit out. Even if it's, this makes this the last episode of Star Trek, I hope like something happens where they both learn their fucking lesson, even if it's getting dissolved. Um, but they were just like, hey, d- don't murder anybody on our planet. Uh, we're just like light and. But he, he let thought. them. He, he let them fake murders. Yeah. Um, which is also very interesting because, like, Kor got to enact his will on 
in a simulation. Yeah. And at the end of this, like, did Korra learn his lesson or did he just learn that? Well, he eventually is kind of a good guy, so. It's just so good because, like, friends with they, they humiliate them. They let them, like, do this whole thing. And then it's like, well, you think about that next time. And then they just leave. <laughs> yeah, uh, because yeah. Their, their, their dominion presumably only extends to this domain. It, it's right? an episode that yep. ends on just, mm, bye, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess if yeah, we bye fight, bye. all bye our bye. enemies are gonna, or all our weapons are gonna stop working. So fuck that. That'd be awesome if the episode ended with them going up to their spaceships to blow each other up because they're like, "Whoa, uh, well, you want to take this outside, buddy?" And the Organians like, "You are missing the point entirely." <laughs> all right, we're gonna take this outside. Teleport up. Well, uh, Peter actually all the spaceships, and they got reports from Earth that all weapons everywhere stopped working for the Federation. Jesus Christ! Yeah. So maybe pay more attention, you fucking non-nerd. It's amazing where I draw the line, and <laughs> that was the line. Yeah. Uh, so, anyways, yeah, let's talk about Star Trek Three: uh, The Search for Spock. Um, dude, where's my Spock? Dude, where's my Spock? Uh, where's my Spock? Spock, dude. lock and roll, dude. <laughs> this movie, before it even gets started, has my favorite, my favorite line in the English language. Okay. And it's better than. Uh, dabbling brook or any of the other sort of uh, you know uh, trademark sort of English teachers like like this is the this is uh, some of the most beautiful words in the English language put together and it's Christopher Lloyd as Krug yeah well here's what happened so Kirstie Alley obviously in Star Trek 2 not in this one she's replaced by Robin Curtis uh, as Savick and the brass over at Paramount was like you're gonna do a Star Trek movie Without a CBS sitcom star? Uh, I don't think so. So buy your. So if someone from Cheers is leaving, someone from Taxi's going right in there. <laughs> uh, and that is why Christopher Lloyd. No, it's. Uh, yeah, it's like pre Back to the Future. It is post Taxi, though. Uh, so let me, do a, let me do a quick recap. Oh, he's so great in this. He's I fucking really love Krug. Uh, although I will say, a movie, I think, should always be used in quotation marks around this because. Uh, it is it's it is connective tissue as a movie. It really is like an episode of television. Like, okay, to get us from here to here, here's what we need to do. I enjoy quite a bit of it, uh, but it is it's it it really. I can't imagine seeing this and then having to wait until the next movie because it's it's. Um, I think what they had to wait, like, I guess only two years, but still. Couldn't you say that about two of your favorite movies of all time, Empire Strikes Back and Last Jedi? Yeah, but I think Empire Strikes Back. I mean, they're they're great movies, but they are middle acts. Middle acts are inherently frustrating when they're over because you're like, get to the fireworks factory. Yeah, but I think, first of all, I think those movies have more fireworks factory. They're a little bit more uh, telling. Like, this is picking up one very specific thing and then telling a whole new story around it. And um, also, the, yes, those are the two best Star Wars movies. But I'm saying, like, I think I understand the general impulse because they this is a middle act movie, which are inherently frustrating. So that's why it didn't bother me. It's nice that they don't do the Into Darkness thing where, like, Spock wakes up, they find him in the tube, and then they have a movie with Spock. It's even nicer, which you'll see, that they, like, take it seriously enough that, like, while Spock's alive and looks like Leonard Nimoy again for Star Trek Four, he's not really himself. And a lot of that is, like, him learning to remember the not just his memories, but the relationships that he had. 
Uh, and so that's really nice. Like they, I, the the thing I will give, I will give this movie and this this little like mini arc of movies from Star Trek Two to Star Trek Four all the credit in the world that they killed off a main character, they brought him back, and they wholly and utterly earned it by bringing him back in a way that felt not like we just wanted the cheap thrill and audiences to cry in Wrath of Khan, but like we take it seriously and we know that bringing him back has to be a like basically a two movie long journey. Um, so that's really great. I, but there's just, you know, it is, it is surrounded by the two best Star Trek movies. And so it does feel like getting from this point to this point. But anyway, so the quick recap is it really picks off right after Star Trek two. They're coming back from the Genesis planet. They don't know Spock is there. Uh, they get back home. They're toasting Spock. They're going to decommission the, the enterprise because it's 20 years old and, uh, go with the, uh, Excelsior. Uh, also a great name for a vibrator. Very, yeah, very good uh, for vibrator. Excelsior. Excelsior. In my vagina and or butt. Um, <laughs> the, uh, True believer, ladies. You will not believe what the Excelsior can do for you. <laughs> uh, so. It will make you a mighty Thor. Vibrator salesman. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Anthony always keeps talking about this college thing that he's doing, but he's actually just a vibrator salesman. Um, but hold on, refilling my drink. So they uh, after that, I need to refill my drink. It's a good thing you weren't um, drinking during the whole it. drink. Yeah. Uh, so they go Talk back your collar a few times too. Then Sarek is like, uh, Sarek shows up while they're toasting Spock, and they're like, he's like, "Where's my, where's my kids?" Memories is chakra, uh, and they review the tape and they find out that Spock uh, put his chakra into McCoy, which is why McCoy's been acting a little goofy lately, saying some Spockisms. Uh, one of the best scenes of the movie is where they tell McCoy that he has Spock's brain inside him, and he's like that little Vulcan bastard. He says <laughs> he says that green blooded son yeah, of a bitch. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I remember uh, it because I'm a McCoy fan. McCoy's like, the McCoy's the best. best. He's my favorite. Yeah, he's my favorite. McCoy is the best character on the show. I mean, I understand Spock. Right, layers like, and whatnot, uh, but McCoy is just out there with the yeah. one-liners and... Yeah, McCoy just shows up with, like, a bottle of booze in Wrath of Khan. <laughs> he's just like, all right, I've got, like, a legal hooch for you. And I'm like, all right, you're my favorite character. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> so anyway, so they... Uh, what the, the goal is is to bring, bring um, McCoy back to Vulcan to... Um, uh, to like connect his mind with his body, but of course his body's on the Genesis planet. So Kirk is like, "Hey, this is where Kirk really becomes a this, the where the family element becomes more important than the work element." That continues for the rest of the movie, and that uh, the macro th- theme I've said runs through all these movies, which is like Kirk's fear of getting older. Um, is very much present there. Like he basically they're retiring his ship, they're retiring everything, and he looks around and he sees. Oh, this thing that I built my life on and the thing that was the most important to me, my career and my captainship, doesn't matter. Now I'll give up everything for my family, which is something that I think in some respects a lot of people do as they get older and they look around and they're like, oh, what's the most important thing in my life? Maybe it wasn't my job I spent all this time on. Uh, so that's really the, the Kirk getting older moment in this movie. Uh, so anyways, so he uh, steals the Enterprise because they're going to decommission anyways. They fly to the Genesis planet where David, his son, and Savick have been investigating and found that the Genesis planet, uh, uh, David used some fucked up 
proton matter, so everything is not stable. It's growing rapidly. So when they find Spock, he's been resurrected, but he's going through uh, rapidly aging. Uh, meanwhile, there's a Klingon played by Christopher Lloyd who finds out about the Genesis plan and is like, great weapon. Um, I can basically... He's kind of a rogue agent, right? Yeah. Like he's... he's Correct. He's a... Uh... He's basically just piloting one ship with one crew, and he's not representing the Klingon army, which is currently in negotiations. Correct. So he's uh, he's doing his thing. Uh, and of course, even when he finds out that uh, Genesis is unstable and the planet blows up, he's like, even better. Both work for me. I don't think you understand. Uh, either way, I'm destroying the planet. This is great for a like a, a warlord who, yeah. wants to, who wants to gain power. I, I want a super weapon. So he... Um, he ends up damaging the Enterprise significantly. Um, they blow it up with all his crew inside. Uh, and then there's a showdown on the planet where they eventually come out ahead. Uh, David dies in the process. They bring Spock back. They fly the Klingon bird of prey home, reconnect his uh, memories and stuff with the living Spock, which surprised everyone. And he comes out and says, I believe your name is Jim. Uh, not like it, it tugs at your <laughs> heartstrings. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, and that's the, like I said at the beginning. That's the line they started with. They knew that that was the moment, and they worked backwards from there to make this movie because they knew it had to be a journey to get Spock back. But they also knew they had to get it, and that is why. So they knew there wasn't much suspense and surprise of where the movie's going. It's why they decided to blow up the Enterprise because they thought that could be. They kept that extremely secret. They thought that that could be the surprise moment because they knew that the ending of this movie was, like, uh, f- foretold. <laughs> um, were you surprised that the Enterprise blew up as a – Totally, and it, it carried so much power. And I think that that was one of the reasons I, I was positive about this movie is because they do make – even though a lot of it is sweaty bullshit, like having to get sp- – Spock ends up being alive on the Genesis planet and his personality is also within McCoy and also they need to get him back to a mountain on Vulcan and and then eventually that all works out like that that shit is extremely sweaty um but stuff that's not sweaty is them making the hard decision to blow up the Enterprise and yeah. land on a planet that's about to blow up also. Like, that is, that's the sort of hard decision making from Wrath of Khan that I fucking love because it's like actual dramatic stakes. And like, even well, though Eddie, I know Eddie there's like fucking price, 20 right? more movies, I know that, um, I know that like in my, in the back of my head, I'm like, that was a meaningful decision for the creators. And that wasn't them, like, one of the uh, do you think in the next Star Wars movie they're gonna blow up the fucking Millennium Falcon? Not fucking likely. I mean, if they do, like hell yeah. But like blowing up iconography that is associated with so much money and so, and so much uh, uh, history and your fans, your fans, like there's a big chance you're gonna piss them off. Uh, does have an impact because you know they're taking the storytelling more seriously than fan service. And in 2019, that is so refresh- refreshing. Well, and kind of spoiler alert for – not really a spoiler alert, but for Star Trek IV, uh, they spend the whole movie in the Bird of Prey. Oh, really? Yeah. That's really cool. I like yeah. that. Yeah, so I like that because it's them living with their decisions. Exactly. Uh, it's again. That's one of the reasons I really liked this as a kid. I, and um, and it was never my favorite. It wasn't Star Trek Five bad. 
and it wasn't for me as a kid boring like Star Trek the motion picture it just wasn't as like fucking amazing as 2, 4, and 6 but I still liked this one more than the motion picture as a kid I don't think that way anymore uh, and definitely liked it more than Star Trek 5 in that I think I mentioned this on our um, our pilot episode where we talked about our history like the fact that there's this loose trilogy of movies in the middle from Star Trek, you know, three, uh, two through four, which like, yeah, they do live with their decisions. Stuff does change. Things don't just reset at the next one. And they really play like like Star Trek four is going to pick up right on Vulcan. <laughs> you know, Star Trek three picks up driving back from the Genesis planet right after Star Trek uh, two. And that was uh it was the first thing I think for me that had that level of like continuity. Just everything I was watching was because I hadn't seen Star Wars yet, and most movies and sequels like didn't were not that like we're picking off where the last one left off. We're barely giving a sense of new viewers what the fuck is going on. Like we're we're doing this. This is a true one story arc. Uh, you know, that was so crazy to me. So as a result, Star Trek three, just being a part of that and like moving the story forward was something I really enjoyed. And again, it's not hurt that it's bookended by two and four. So like when you have that good of a beginning and that great of an ending, um, Star Trek three, not quite measuring up in a lot of respects. Like it's not a chore to sit through and it has a lot of still exciting moments. So is so the Enterprise comes back for Picard, which is a TNG. Next Generation is a sequel series. Well, it's, it's eighty years later. So the Enterprise is it a new ship that's just it's named a complete, in the honor? Yeah, so it's a completely new ship. So that's um, fine though. This what that was what like I, I'm not going to be able to guess five years after this. Uh, so this came out in 84, so it came out three years later. Uh, Next Generation actually starts in 87, I believe. Why do I think that TNG is... We talked about this recently, how I, f- I feel like there's like 90s things and 80s things, and there's a 10-year gap between, and it doesn't yep. actually... Nothing happens in that gap. No, that's still weird for me, because I didn't pick the, up the Next the Generation until are... like the 90s either. So like, and I would watch the old ones on reruns. So I always, like, it's crazy to me that it goes back to 87, but I do remember... I didn't know that TNG was older than me. Yeah, I do remember uh, the Star Trek The Voyage Home video cassette, like when it was first released, has a preview for – so that would have come out in either late 86 or early 87, and then Star Trek is going to premiere fall of uh, 87. That has a preview for the pilot episode of Next Generation. Like this is coming to televisions near you. So – in between Star Trek four and five, Next Generation comes out. Um, yeah, that's that's actually really cool because I that will give me a good space to actually like uh, synthesize all this shit because I, in my head, my timeline is so wrong. Yeah, but just remember, like from a timeline of the shows, um, Next Generation is like w- almost a century after. Like these movies, the reason. So McCoy why, is so McCoy is dead in TNG. So McCoy is no, he's on TNG, but he is like hundred and sixty years old or something like that. 
Oh, they do Bible shit where people can just live to no, whatever age no, they, until like, they fulfill their purpose and then they die. Like, well, you know, to help with hyposprays and medical advancements, people live longer. And he's just someone who happened to live long. Uh, Scotty, there's a thing that happens to get him there. Uh, Vulcans live two to three hundred years. So that's like just that's why Spock and Sarek and all these people are still around. I can buy that. So and then. Shatner also, you know, in generations ends up there through some, you know, time stuff. So timey whiny. <laughs> I was just going to say that. Yeah. So it's uh, it's there's nothing in Star Trek five or six that like are impacted by next generation. Actually, the opposite where Gene Roddenberry, because there's some things that are introduced, especially in six that in theory should have been around for the next generation and they weren't. And so there was a lot of like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that didn't really happen. Maybe that's apocryphal. <laughs> so I want to, I want to jump into the fact that they bring Kirk, uh, they bring Spock back. So this all feels very sweaty to me. Um, and it, because I actually, love... before you get into that, can I, can I share the best little touch of the fact that Spock basically isn't in this movie? That yeah, I love, on. love, love. It's so minor, you probably didn't even notice. But I, um, Anthony, I'd be interested if you noticed. So the opening credits, it always went Shatner, Nimoy, DeForest Kelly. Like the TV show, those are the only three that get it. The first few movies, it's Shatner, Nimoy, um, DeForest Kelly. In this one, they have Shatner, and then instead of just going to Nimoy. Or right to DeForest Kelly, they have a pause of no credits. And then it goes to DeForest Kelly. And then it goes quick right to the next one like you'd expect. I just love that little touch. Huh. Like, we know you're expecting to see Leonard, Leonard Nimoy's name. We're not going to give it to you, but we're also not going to go right to DeForest Kelly. Like, we're going to take a space and recognize that there is something missing here. And that is one of my favorite little touches in a very sweaty movie. I hate that it's sweaty because it, like, gets us off on the wrong foot because it feels like that is shitty fan service stuff that I hate. And in 2019, when so many of these franchises feel like they are, they exist to make a specific fan base sated. Um, it is so frustrating when I'm like, just like, but like the, the death of Spock is like one of the most amazing moments in an amazing movie like it's 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 like one of those cinematic moments i'll never forget despite having seen the shitty reboot version first like well, it still does. had that power right. that shows you how powerful it is right yeah yeah um and uh to take that back feels enormously shitty to me and i feel like that is you know ideally like i love leonard nimoy but like i don't need him to come back after getting such an amazing exit like that, and obviously the intention was Leonard Nimoy was leaving the series. He was sick of Shatner's shit. He wanted to move on and do his own other projects, yada, yada. But And then he was making Wrath of Khan, and he was like, actually, I do want to come back. Um, yeah, and that's does, actually it, why it, Nicholas Meyer's not back. Because once Leonard Nimoy was like, maybe I would come back, that's when they did all the hand stuff and kind of and showed uh, Spock on the planet and against Nicholas Myers. Which, right. That was the, so he was like, fuck. That was that. the uh, producer's idea. It was sort. It was sort of his like just in case gambit. Yeah, um, I I really, but I really don't like um, that they brought Spock back. 
though once we get I get over the fact that Spock is coming back, I found a lot of joy in this movie and a lot of rewarding moments that are not fan of service, that are that are tough moments and they are they're challenging, yes, but there's also moments that are that are leaning into the strengths of the original show. Like I, I do kind of love that instead of having like a pitched space battle, um they have a moment where they both kind of just fuck each other up. The Enterprise and <laughs> yeah. the Bird of Prey. And then they're both like, oh man, we're really fucked up. And then the other crew's like, we're really fucked up. And then they're like, why aren't they blowing <laughs> us up? Um, that's a great moment. Yeah. And, it, and it is actually them finding a way to contextualize the fact that Star Wars was always better at action. And Star Trek was always better at the, you know, intellectual philosophical debates. It, 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 it find, it, when, when Star Trek leans into its strengths, that's when I like it. When Star Trek is like, well, we got to have a big fucking fist fight here. I'm like, mm, do you? Yeah, that's why I like the, the moment of outsmarting uh, Christopher Lloyd's man and blowing up the Enterprise, even though it's a thing you love being destroyed. It feels so satisfying, unlike the fist fight between Shatner and Lloyd at the end, which is like, all right, well, you can get on with this. This is poorly choreographed. Actually, Uh, I'm going to push back on that. I kind of like that because to tie it back with Aaron to Mercy, it's it's Kirk sort of being reduced to his enemy's level where like he's just he's emotionally drained he he's not outwitting anymore. He's just full of absolute rage over the murder of his son. What the like the 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 fight going on above his head. The whole thing with Spock, and he just completely loses it. He loses everything, and he just it culminates with like that that brutal, really like unchoreographed fight, and then like. When the guy's hanging off the cliff, he just starts kicking him, and he goes, "I have had enough of yeah. you." Yeah, and I and I like that we get to see Kirk in that position, but in a, in true Star Trek fashion, it would probably be more like, at least what I've seen so far. I feel like it would be like Kirk loses his shit, and then uh, Krug easily wins the fight because Krug has that amazing scene where he fights that space <laughs> enemy. Yeah, that's that's Anytime. one thing I like about Klingons. It's like, oh, a new creature. <laughs> well, you and I must battle to the death to see. <laughs> Surprise! It's me. It's so I love. It. <laughs> I love in these movies anytime we meet n- n- get to meet a new space monster like in Wrath of Khan with those earwig things. Did, so like, did you like his dog? Oh my god, I love the dog. It's so great. And then he's like he's like Brock Brock and it says feed him. No, Brock Brock. <laughs> no, you died. Oh, it's it's good shit. Um but the the that fight to me the problem with it is that like it should end with some weird thing happening like Kirk just like throwing his corpse at this guy knowing that it's a foregone conclusion that he's gonna lose and then something weird happening where he well, gets to win Kirk getting to win a fist fight against him feels weirdly wrong to me like Kirk cheated against Khan by breaking off a pipe and beating him to hell with him in the in the show <laughs> like yeah. I don't think Kirk should win as the like he's a roguish bad boy he's not I don't think I don't see him as the the 
I don't know. Well, and Muscle Boy. Yeah, and and Anthony, I, I do agree with you though because I think the moment to me is it's just kind of like anticlimactic because I don't I don't find the fight that interesting. But I think I think you're 100 percent right. What I will say saves the whole thing and the David Death part again. I don't want to spoil anything, but I will just say that both of the moments of him being so angry at the Klingons and David being killed, which does just seem like, well, we're bringing someone back. There still needs to be a cost that Kirk pays. I, I loved that I moment. And also I was thinking in my head, I was like, this really frees up Kirk's weakness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, he was pretty free. He was a deadbeat dad before, so it just kind of resets the status quo a little for him. Yeah, when you're uh, a deadbeat dad and your son gets into his 20s or 30s, at that point, like, yeah, I guess you got to make up the time every, like, you know, month or two months. But, like, eh, you don't have to, like, show up every day. That's crazy. He's an adult but, And man. it gives him great ammunition for when he's at the bars. He's like, you know, my boy died. He was murdered <laughs> yeah. by a Klingon. Some t- I just... I don't think I could be alone tonight. They're like, were you guys close? No. Uh, I never saw him till a couple weeks no, ago. No, but you, you got you to gotta sell it for the lady he's, uh, he, he's yeah. trying to impress. I just met him for the first time. Yeah, when he's drinking like Krognarian sherry. I was sherry off, and I was off like, having like, sex with drinking? other people. Oh, God, I had a plan, but I you wasn't. Know it's not, you know it's not technically uh, Krognar unless it's from the Krognar region, right? Actually, <laughs> um, yeah, but but what I was going to say is that the reason why those moments, I think, still work uh, on the series as a whole is that, um, again, not to ruin anything for Peter, is that, like, there are repercussions that come from both of those moments later in a later movie. And I really yeah. like that, that kind of Kirk kind of – like, you're right, Anthony. He changes for a moment. It's almost a – a continuation of the core stuff and he changes and he's like, I want you to die. Um, and like that moment has repercussions in, in Star Trek six. So, and I also want to say that it's fun that Kirk is always a rogue because it reminds me of mission impossible immersion. Impossible. <laughs> mission impossible. Oh, the Sean because- Connery saying yeah. mission impossible. <laughs> You're on in like mission impossible movies where like, he needs to go steal the ship or he needs to have like uh, pissed off the captain. Like he needs to have done something in these movies where where somebody at Starfleet is mad at him. Well, and um, also the thing is, though, at least is Kirk, too. Kirk is like the Han Solo, right? Like he'll throw punches, but he's going to lose fights and have to find a scrappy way out of it. The biggest mistakes of the Star Trek Next Generation movies is like, hmm, we like writing punches, what if Picard also is constantly throwing punches? Like, they turn Picard, which is, like, definitely not up his alley, even as a even as an underdog who at least is scrappy. And they're like, what if he punched people a lot? That's, like, the problem with the Star Trek The Next Generation movies in a very, very big nutshell. Uh, but we'll talk about that more. Uh, yeah, so let's uh, – Peter, though, we mentioned it. Uh, good acting alert. Boop, 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 boop. Uh, when, uh, Spock first, or sorry, when Kirk first thinks that Spock has been re-murdered and then finds out, uh, it was his son, I'm gonna say, great acting Shatner moment. Uh, it worked for me. It didn't stand out the way that, God, uh, stood out for me as bad acting. Um, it, it worked for me. I think that Kirk is, stands out less in this movie 
and having these moments where you feel like there's genuine pathos uh, really helps you actually still give a shit about Kirk because there are way more interesting characters all around him. Yeah. And to have him still be dramatically compelling is is pretty important to a movie like this. He's still technically our, our hero. Well, and that's what I like. You're, I, I do think he's less confident. He's less brashy. He's less the I can do anything, which, again, is a great character continuation from Star Trek 2. Because Star Trek 2 is all about the Kuba, uh, Kubayashi Maru, that he always has the unwinnable scenario. And the end of that movie is taking that away from him. Like, he finally had to pay the costs for his brashness and his pride. And it's great that in Star Trek 3, he is much, you're right, like, he's less big, he's less confident, he's like, my ship's gone, my career's gone, okay, Sarek, like, it's such a, he has such a calm, like, uh, like, he probably should be on Prozac or Space Prozac. Oh my god, yeah. He really just feels like the dog who finally, like... You know, had whatever I'm going with this analogy, I don't like, so I'm not going to do it. But you know, he he has lost his like sense of arrogance, and so his character does feel different, and that's why I think he feels less big and brashy than he does. It's like, yeah, I'm just going to try to do this one last good thing, and then I don't know, die. I do really like that Kirk is not stealing the show so much, which behind the scenes he might have been because like there is not enough time to establish the Klingon first mate. Uh, sorry, uh, the Vulcan for why do I keep flipping those names? Uh, we don't have we do not have time for the Vulcan first mate. Um, Who the little lady? That's Savick. That's Christy Alley from the first movie. Oh, yeah. We don't have any time with her. <laughs> Enough that you didn't realize it was supposed to be the same character. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I did not I did not like Christy Alley in the first movie, so that's an improvement. Like, I really was annoyed by her. Um, and I think her interpretation of, of what a Vulcan rationality is, is was really dumb. I, I don't think it works because Robin Curtis plays it so different. Like, so differently. And I get Christy Alley as a very specific type of acting. But, like, I, when I was watching it this time, I kept, like, saying, like, trying to imagine Kirstie Alley as uh, Savick play any of these seeds anyway the same way, having the same reaction. And you're like, no, she was – she would never just be, like, a normal – like, she seemed like a emotionless Vulcan who was also, like, a smug brat. Like, you oh, know, like yeah. a – like, a, like everything was, shoulder. like – I think even more than that, like like uh like she would walk away and eye roll everything, like, well that was stupid, everything is stupid like she feels like a like a college kid Vulcan. I I totally agree, and that's why I hated her, because she seemed above the material, but like was far below the material. Like um and in that sense, I just saw the new character Savik. Uh, well, <laughs> I saw the character Savick, um, and I said, oh, I guess that Cruz just saw the success of Kirk and <laughs> Spock, and now they're just like, all right, you got to have a fucking Vulcan on the the, the first mate. You got to be sitting in that chair, because otherwise you're just going to have this asshole run rampant. So you got to have a Vulcan in there. Um, and instead it was like a continuation from the first movie. I didn't catch that at all. That, yeah, that felt like... That feels like a lore level bullshit. 
because it's, uh, so it's just they, could, it's just the they couldn't get one. yeah it's just they couldn't get Kirstie Alley back so they just recast it um, and ultimately overall a great move yeah I do wish um, so there is a Savic like person that shows up in Star Trek Six that's that's actually not supposed to be Savic this time but originally was going to be and I do think that the whole thing works really well if uh, Savic had been the if the character in Star Trek Six was Savic, and it had been played by Kirstie Alley the whole whole way through. Anthony, would you agree without spoiling anything? Yeah, if you're going to attempt to carry a character arc through, if you don't keep the same actor or like somebody who's comparable, you're gonna lose yeah. all of that emotional momentum. I uh, yeah, they would have had to. I, I'm so I'm annoyed that they didn't try and re the character in a sense because the performance is completely different. Therefore, the character is completely different. Well, and the thing, what's so funny is that the performance that Ali gives in in Star Trek Two that you don't like would have worked really well for what the stand-in character happens in Star Trek Six, and so I don't know. It's it's. It's one of those things where, like, the arc could have worked and Kirstie Alley could have stayed with it. Instead, they do this thing where they recast her and then they just say she's a new character by the sixth one. So it's like the worst of all worlds. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't work. But uh, can we jump in real quick for a costumes report? Boop, 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 boop. Yeah, they're bad again. Yeah. <laughs> uh... They're not good again. The only person that's well dressed in this whole fucking movie is Sulu because he's got these like this like flowing leather jacket and it kicks ass. And then he gets to do that cool move where he uh, beats up that guard and he flips out his phaser to do it. Um, that oh no, he flips out his phaser to blow up a computer and then puts it back into his jacket like he's a goddamn cowboy. Sulu looks great. Everyone else looks like shit. Kirk has this weird like uh, flamingo fan shirt on the whole movie um all the guards at starfleet command look like they were mall cops on xanadu um they continued on a weird weird design trend from the show which is that earpieces are these weird little like ear horns that you put in like they're big enough for a camera to pick up and big enough for me to hate um (laughs) They, there's there's a lot of bad collars like Kirk's collar and his jacket goes like all the way to a, a, a long point which I know it's look se- it's post 70s I understand this is I disagree Peter this was exactly the type of clothing my dad weared when he went cross-country skiing are you saying that's not what they were going for <laughs> in the 80s Oh wait, no, I'm sorry. I'm I'm reading my notes and I see this show takes place in the future uh and no one was trying to be my dad going cross country skiing. They, I withdraw my They look like they look like space draculas and it's so bad. <laughs> like I don't think anybody looks good except for people that are just in like I think um who's the character that gets left behind? Ahura, um, uh, which sucks cuz she, when they do the, I do like that they tried to give everyone a little moment. They have that great Ocean's Eleven, like breaking out the Enterprise, and Ahura has the best moment in that. And then she's like, "Okay, and well," and she goes, to, she goes to Vulcan and been like, "Sarek, just um, I'm here to let you know, they're gonna come." Yeah, it's my Sarek, role here. Well, you know that I'm in this movie. I'm in this so movie. This is my line to tell you I'm in this movie. You got it. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know why they did that. That was. There is literally no reason that they couldn't... Availability? 
Definitely not. No, I mean, no offense to Nichelle Nichols, but I, I'm sure there's something in a trivia thing somewhere where she was pissed about it. But um, and rightfully so. That's I mean, that's the whole it. thing, right? The whole thing that these um, like, you know, like uh, these books that all these cast members wrote or interviewed they gave is like they were all kind of, you know, third or fourth fiddle to Spock, McCoy and Kirk. And so, you know, sometimes the show gave them things to do. Sometimes it didn't. Sometimes. And the movies usually try to give them little things to do. And this is one where. Uh, I do like the breakout scene. I just don't know why Nichelle Nichols had to go fly to Vulcan. Makes no fucking sense. Uh, and, but I will say the next movie is the best of giving the whole cast things to do. It's so good. Uh, now that we've done costume report, and I've reported the costumes are dire. I want to talk about what, something we talked about uh, earlier, and it's the cantina scene. And I oh, want yeah. to say that the cantina scene in Search for Spock is bad. Yep. Uh um, it looks like that scene in Mr. Show where, <laughs> where, you're, you're where David Cross is playing like a the racist in space the cadet yep. because McCoy is being a racist to like a shitty looking alien that has like no real design core. He's just like, yeah, let's just make this dude fucking ugly. Let's give him big earrings, stretch his jaw out. Let's give him bad teeth. Like, I don't know. What else is ugly? McCoy and the scene just ends with McCoy getting arrested <laughs> like the whole scene and it's McCoy being space racist which is actually fun to watch unlike real racism <laughs> um <laughs> because it's not real <laughs> um but it is it does make me like McCoy a little bit less because I'm like I'm like hey man you're like in a utopian universe and you're representing the voice of the universe can you keep your fucking voice down while you're throwing out <laughs> throwing out racial epithets against this weird ugly dude <laughs> Peter it just occurred to me you love bar scenes so much do you know that Deep Space Nine's main they don't have a bridge where most of the action takes place most of the action takes place in the bar. I did not know that. The space, like space bar on is the my space favorite station. Star Trek show. Tons of aliens. I love, I love cantina scenes. This one is so funny because like, this is one of the few moments while I was watching the movie that like broke through that I was watching a nerd thing because uh, it made me feel like none of these people have ever been invited out to a bar. Yeah, it's just like a hallway and there's a lady dancing, right? And they're like, well, yeah, I imagine there's booths and then you sit down and um, and you, uh, someone walks up to you and he's like, I would like to drink alcohol with you, sir. And then someone drinks alcohol with you and then you uh, I, uh talk about space business and that is a bar. Yeah, it's uh pretty it really is i mean this is post cantina unlike journey to babel and uh and stuff like that so it does feel like i don't know like two aliens a a hallway a guy from starfleet who is trailing mccoy everyone knows about genesis too like the guy that he meets it's like some of the ship to go to genesis like genesis can't go there and then the, the starfleet guy's like Stop. Don't tell everyone. Dude, be chill. Genesis. Dude, be chill. Like, Genesis is a secret, but everyone fucking knows about it immediately. Yeah, that's why the Starfleet guy is so gentle with him. He's just like, yeah, you know, it's kind of a soft secret, but like, hey, I, I got bills to pay. Uh, so you're getting arrested. I think I think the most actually moment of the series is apparently uh, Kirk 
re-recording Carol Marcus's uh, description of Genesis word for word. Like, it's after his friend dies, because the, they, the, uh, Christopher Lloyd sees the video. The video in the first one had Carol telling Wait, everything. why wouldn't it be the son who actually worked on that project? I know, it's weird. It, that's one of the weirdest things, that Shatner is, like, giving the same speech that Carol did with the same graphics. It's like, all right, it, like, I just went through a tragedy, but I'm going to re-record all your stuff, because you're off the project! <laughs> <laughs> and also, like, David is a character we do need more time with before his sacrifice. Like, why was it not David? Yeah, I know, it's, it's, it's a weird little... Thing, but I, it, it is funny how they're like when why couldn't they show other scenes from the movie like why didn't they just show the same video did they not want to pay the actress probably I guess yeah they probably didn't want to pay the actress or maybe there was a licensing bullshit between Wrath of Khan I don't know but it is it, that scene pops up and I'm like I understand you don't want to have like Christopher Lloyd reading or a ma- letter about project <laughs> details but stop Project Genesis, stop. Immediate. Life-giving. Stop. Yeah. So have we talked about Horny Spock yet? Because I don't Let's think we have. not, because it's disturbing. Uh, Haven't we talked enough about this, Horny Spock? Let's not. Every seven nope. years, Spock nope. gets horny. How does he speak? All right, here's here's the side thing. How does he speak any language? He doesn't. At one point, she's like, she's like, all right, I'll speak Vulcan with you. And he's like, oh, I got this. Fine. How does he speak any language? He's been living on a jungle planet for like nine weeks. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Vulcans have a lot of weird mind powers, as you as you know. Like, what's? I mean, the whole reason they're investigating Sarek and Jerry to Babel is like, well, you know, the Vulcan death grip. Which goes away forever after that after that episode. Hold on. McCoy trying to do the nerve pinch thinking he's Spock is awesome, though. That scene rules. That is one of the best scenes in the movie because it's McCoy doing McCoy shit where he's just like... <laughs> he's still, like, just trying to knock out the authority figure. But he yeah. thinks that he put him with the power that he thinks he has because of the Spock juices roaming around his mind. Because the running, awesome. my running theory is that Spock, or sorry, McCoy does not give a shit about the law. No. <laughs> and because of that, it makes him so much cooler because he's, like, on Starfleet Command in an elite post and is the doctor for single-handedly, I don't know, dozens, hundreds of people, uh, and anything goes wrong with him, the whole crew is fucked. And all of a sudden, he's just, like, breaking the law left and right, and you're like, this dude is the true rogue of the Star Trek universe. Yeah. So who's the who's the new... Uh, who's uh, Kirstie Alley? Uh, Robin Sajan. is the actress. Uh, Cajun Chicken? Oh, Savick. Savick. Uh, Savick has sex with a 14-year-old Vulcan. Um, so just kind of. To... Um, this I just a... gave you sassy eyes. Can you tell? I mean, 14 on Vulcan. Who knows what that is in Earth years? <laughs> Are you Europing me? Are you saying, <laughs> oh, you're saying, oh, well, in Italy, in Italy, the age of consent is only... No, I'm just saying that, like, we don't know how many revolutions around the sun... Yeah. Uh, you know, like Pluto years are different than Earth years, Peter. Yeah, like, I, I'm not going to ask you what you think about Roman Polanski. Um, I'm against. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> is that even a given at this point, though? It is. I'll tell you this. It is convenient that the planet blew up and they got Spock up right after he had aged to the exact age he was when they left him. It's just like it's very convenient. It's nice 
That way they could keep having Leonard Nimoy play him. You know, everything worked out. Yeah, it's a it's a weird moment. It's definitely one of those moments where you're like, unless you have a little bit of a sci-fi boner right now, this scene is going to really, really throw you off. Uh, uh, one other little note on that. Uh, Nimoy, after he convinced Paramount to let him direct when Nicholas Myers wouldn't come back, one of the producers said, well, it's the first director that we can't fire. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. That's yeah. really good. Um, and then they got to Shatner later and they were like, please, we wish we could fire you. <laughs> they, uh, clearly, they could not fire him or else they absolutely would have. Yeah. Um, so re- I will say resetting Spock is a really good plot move after they get to Vulcan. Because if he just came back and was just like, hey, I'm your bold buddy Spock, uh, it would be uh, incredibly cheesy. And- yeah. And again, it, I think it would have been incredibly easy because they spend a lot of time. There's like time that passes between three and four where they're on Vulcan and Spock continues like his reeducation or whatever. Um, and it would have been incredibly easy to pick Star Trek four back up with him being um, back to his normal self. And they don't. They wait until essentially not even the end of the movie. Like there's. Some, that happens more between Star Trek 4 and 5. He just is, like, set on the path to uh, remembering how these, like, interpersonal relationships worked and stuff like that. So, yeah, it, it's why the resurrection works for me. It's that it, they don't just drag it out over one movie. They get him to a point where he has memories at that movie, and then they continue that on. And I, I, I mean – I think that's why this is one of the few times where, like, resurrecting a character, as you said, Peter, the death doesn't feel cheap as a result, and you don't feel angry at the end of it that it was a cheap plot device. Like, there's it's, that's always somewhat the case when you bring back a character, like fucking Jesus Christ, uh, but... <laughs> They only three days they bring him back and they give him and he's powers. not a camp counselor ridiculous. anymore. Yeah, ridiculous. But uh, yeah, it's like they they earn it in a way that uh, and if you think about it, like they earn it just time wise, like from the perspective of the audience, he doesn't come back to when does like to his normal self uh, until Star Trek five comes out, which is 1989, you know? he dies in 82 like the next time you see spock fully spock is seven years later they earn it and i really like i really like that that if they are going to do this thing where they're like we can't give up one of the central reasons people like the show we're going to drag it out a little bit and 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 dramatically justify why in a sci-fi fantasy universe he is allowed to come back uh i do like that they're not just giving you the instant gratification um and it's it's like that they did the the instant gratification move right away to like let you know that spock is coming back and then they did the more artistically sound move which was but it's gonna take some time Uh, yeah and, and that's really that is really compelling to me yeah uh so i think we've been talking a long time i think it's time to wrap this up Anthony, final thoughts, Star Trek 3, or the movies in uh, Star Trek 3 is pretty good. I, I enjoy it. Uh, I really love 
the the whole Klingon language invented by uh, by Scotty, uh, and I think sort of having the Klingon speak Klingonese for the first time, uh, it lends it makes everything seem a little bigger. Uh, it it lends sort of a menace to them, you know, sort of like falling back on the trope of sort of like making them very foreign by having them speak this unrecognizable language. Yeah, it really does add dimensions because if you think about it, they were cartoon villains in the original series and they blow up at the beginning of uh, the motion picture. So this is really kind of sets them on the path to uh, where they end up by Star Trek Six. They even mention the peace accords that they're trying some stuff. So, yeah. So, like I said, I, I like this as connective tissue. It gets from the second best Star Trek movie to the best. Um, or I should say from my second favorite to my favorite. I, I mean, I think it's I, it I has, still think it, the, the four is the best. <laughs> I mean, Star Trek two is like a template movie that so many people ripped off, um, including Star Trek over and over again. <laughs> like Star Trek Nemesis, Star Trek Into Darkness is like, let's do Wrath of Khan again. Um, it's a really fantastically directed movie, but. Star Trek Four is it's my absolute favorite, and I I agree it's a second best, and I can't wait I can't wait to do it. But you don't get there, you don't get there in a way where everything feels earned enough for them to go on a little bit more of a fun adventure if you don't have this this movie. Oh yeah, for a movie that ultimately could be described as like necessary, which is not which is not the best compliment for a movie. It fulfills what it needs to do with a plum, um, but it doesn't because it because it has a need to fulfill. It just doesn't hit the heights of a movie that was open to telling whatever story they wanted to tell. But I I, I still think it's full of a lot of good stuff. Uh, it it's yeah. it moves like God is it, it like it's sh- I think it's the shortest Star Trek. It's like a hundred and four minutes. But. Uh, you, you know, it, it moves in a way a lot of original series episodes don't. Yeah. And it's just super fun to like, it's a it's a fun place to be. Yeah, I think all the, I think that there's a propulsive energy in this that keeps it moving through the sweatiness. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I will say that this is a movie that surprised me because when it began, I was like, <sighs> <laughs> like, this is some sweaty bullshit. Are we going to be able to get through this? Like, uh, you know, without me seeming like a total asshole on Mike. Yeah. Um, and I end up really enjoying it. Maybe more than Aaron does. And uh, No, I, I like it. It's just, um, like, the, you have to understand, there's a part of me that is just itching for next week. Or next Yeah. Week. And I will say that I am biased by the fact that I am watching this show with the intention of becoming a Star Trek fan, because, like, it is 42 minutes until they get to the, they get the Enterprise back in the possession. Yeah. 40 two minutes in an hour and 45 ish minute movie like that's insane like they don't even get like that basically just guarantees that the whole first act is just like people talking about maybe going on an adventure i don't know maybe we'll go what should we do maybe we'll go on an adventure i guess and then and then the second act is like i don't know 20 minutes and then they get to the fireworks factory which is the entire third act and i really like the movie for what it is once you get past this sweaty opening moment and it does have great mccoy and spock moments which are my favorite moments from the show so far yeah so so it gives me all of that and we didn't talk about christopher lloyd that much christopher lloyd 
is so great in this movie because it's because he is he is completely i think he's incapable of being embarrassed like there's there's a movie i grew up with called camp nowhere that's terrible camp nowhere has him playing like the jokester almost earnest or adam sandler character and he is the least funny probably Christopher Lloyd's ever been and yet he's still very funny and is leaning into it and he's not embarrassed by the role and that's no. why I love him because he like he's like oh I get to like growl like a boar and I get to yell at people and tell people to feed my weird space dog and I get to wrangle with some weird space centipede like hell yeah he's so game for all of it which is what makes these movies charming it was when people lean into it an ironic yeah. an ironic sense of detachment would ruin these movies to their core yeah it's why Christy Alley doesn't work but would have worked if she would have stayed through six yeah, so I'm uh, I'm I'm still very much on the Star Trek train. I want to watch four like tomorrow. Um, yeah, if you get off the st- so let's let's talk about this. So before you watch four, Peter, you do have an episode you need to watch that actually reveals something uh, that confused the fuck out of me the first time I saw the movie because uh, while I won't reveal it, the mechanism for making the action happen is just something everyone goes, oh, we'll do this. And I saw the movie before I saw the episode and I'm like, what the fuck is this? And I'm, and obviously it is explained on an episode of Star Trek why the, why they learned how to do this and why it's a normal method for something to happen. So I think that will help inform it. And that episode is uh, a good one. Uh, it's called Tomorrow is Yesterday. Um, the episode title is wrong. <laughs> just to well, I mean, it kind of isn't. Mm. Yeah, it's but wrong. like but Peter, not you, from Peter, a you're, certain, you're such a simple. I mean, I mean, from a certain sort of specific meaning. I mean, blue is blue is blue. And yeah, but from my point of view, the reason the words exist is because we kind of agreed on the meaning for them. But, but that's, my, that's from fine. my point of view, it's okay. the Jedi who are evil. <laughs> uh, and you're gonna watch another episode called Red is Blue. Uh. <laughs> and you know what's fun about this, Aaron? We don't have to. We don't have to tell people what's next week because everyone knows. Yeah, that it's well, gonna we have to say tomorrow is yesterday. Yeah, we're going to do Star Trek Four, The Voyage Home, uh, and tomorrow is yesterday. So tune in next month. Uh, I, I, I yeah, hope that I leads to a whole, like, who's on first routine. It's like, all right, tomorrow we are doing Tomorrow is Yesterday, which we watched yesterday. Who's but tomorrow? I, I, think you, I think you just did it, Anthony. I think you took all the wind <laughs> out of our sails, and now it's ruined. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. But thank you. But uh, sincere thank you to Anthony for coming. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, thanks, thanks for, for having me, guys. I had. We need to have you back on. We love to watch. Yes. Uh, soon. I, I would like that. So yeah, I'm very excited for next month, uh, Anthony. Thank you. Again. Oh, thanks for having uh, me, guys. Uh, Pete, for you, tomorrow will be yesterday, and I'll see you on the voyage home. <laughs>
Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. Show, we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, we really do appreciate you uh, with kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. <laughs> Tonight, the boys are talking about Star Trek, the motion picture number three, which is the one where Spock's corpse has uh, landed on the surface of a planet, which has been hit with a quote-unquote Genesis virus, which is supposed to breathe life back into the planet. And so through this, the body of Spock is brought back to life, and he undergoes a sort of accelerated uh, life cycle, going from a small child to an adolescent, and finally back into a full-grown man. Meanwhile, Kirk is on the Enterprise, and he meets Spock's father, who tells him that uh, Spock put his consciousness into the body of Bones McCoy, the ship's surgeon. And so that explains why Bones McCoy is behaving very peculiarly throughout the beginning of this film. Um, his scientific rationale is tempered by these strange emotionless outbursts, and it is quite something to see. So Kirk decides that they have to go to this planet to retrieve his fallen friend. And of course, the Federation is having none of this. They say, this is nonsense, Kirk. You are not going to that planet. You are going to stay here. And so Kirk stages um, something of a little a little coup. He, um, he and his crew uh, disobey orders quite frequently. They steal a space shuttle and make a daring escape to Genesis. And what they do not know is that a Klingon, um, I believe it's called Bird of War, is hovering in the area, and they too are interested in this planet. And they discover the coffin that once contained the body of Mr. Spock.
And so they go hunting for him to get revenge for atrocities committed against them by the Federation. And so there's a lengthy, lengthy sequence once um, once the Enterprise landing party meets up with the Klingons on the planet. Uh, and they just... Um, there is some quite violent conflict and they wind up... Um, oh, there's quite a lot of death. I don't want to go into too many spoilers, but um, some significant characters die. And, um, well, Kirk is reunited with his friend and um, they kill all the Klingons and the Klingons blow up the Enterprise, which is quite a shocking and rather emotional scene. You see the Enterprise just completely destroyed and the crew has to take over the Klingon ship. Uh, and it's quite a rousing moment, and they bring Spock back to Vulcan, where they use um, ancient Vulcan practices to put Spock's consciousness back in his body, extracting it from McCoy. And uh, Spock is back together, but not altogether, although he does recognize his friend, Captain James T. Kirk, which is quite a moving little scene. I must admit, tears flowed audience. Tears flowed from my eyes. Uh, and it lets you know that perhaps things will be all right. This film was, of course, directed by Mr. Spock himself, Leonard Nimoy, um, part of a package deal as revealed in Leonard Nimoy's uh, autobiography, I Am Spock, a sort of sequel to uh, his memoir, I Am Not Spock, a sort of contradiction of titles, as it were. Uh, he did not want to come back for another Star Trek film, but they, the executives at Paramount offered him the directing job for the film, and so he was quite unable to turn down that offer, and so that is how we got to where we are. <laughs> how many minutes have you been going? Uh, since Aaron went to the bathroom. <laughs> I just recapped the entire plot of Star Trek Three. <laughs> <laughs> 